0: Seventeen of Isaiah thirty-three, but I do want to read the whole uh, chapter to us. Isaiah thirty-three, and do just let me say, when we read in the first few words, "Are you destroyer?" That's Assyria that's being referred to there. Uh, Assyria, the nation that laid. Uh, Israel and Judah waste and even disperse the peoples to the nations of, of the world. And this is what God has to say. Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, gathers as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime. Like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done. And you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil he will dwell on the heights his place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks his bread will be given him his water will be sure your eyes will behold the king in his beauty they will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who contend? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cores be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, The Lord is our King. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Amen.
1: Here's a good question to start with. Do you have a favourite verse uh, from the Bible, do you? Of course, some, with an over-spiritualised mentality, that is, uh, some may say, well, surely, eh, all the verses of the Bible are equally important, and therefore you shouldn't have a favourite verse. And indeed, in some measure, they are right. For as we read, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. All scripture. But still, we are human. And every person is different. And all our lives are different. And in addition, not Every verse of the Bible is of equal weight, so to speak. All is God-breathed, all is useful, but not all is, are of equal weight. Therefore, I think it's only natural, and it's also perfectly correct, for us to have favourite verses. So, with that in mind, do you have a favourite verse from the Bible? Perhaps it's a well-known verse, such as John 3, verse 16. Or 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Perhaps it's a more obscure verse, uh, which in the past has has been of specific relevance uh, and benefit to you. Now, over recent years, what with COVID and then the war in Ukraine and other uh, issues that have happened in this world, uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, has impressed itself upon me goes like this, teach us to number our days. It's what Moses writes, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I could preach uh, tonight's message based on that verse. I'm not going to, but there is a similar resonance with what I have to say. Teach us to number our days. Our lives are just like like a breath, the Bible says, just like the uh, shuttle's, on a, on a weaver's shuttle going, zip, zip, back and gone. It's gone, just like that. Our lives t- are so short, aren't they? Teach us to number our days that we may gain. We might gain a heart of wisdom. However, uh, the verse which is my all-time favourite. It's a wonderful verse. It's a verse that we read from Isaiah 33. Verse, verse 17. I hope you noticed it uh, as we read it through. Let me read it to you again. I'm going to quote it from the NIV only because if I try to quote it from the ESV, I'll stumble over it. I memorized it in the NIV as most scripture I know, so I tend to quote from the NIV. So apologies to Hugh and others for that. But let me quote it. uh, Let me read it to you again from the NIV. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Isn't that wonderful? Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. And it's this uh, verse which is our text for this evening. Now something which has struck me uh, more and more in fact uh, through my years of studying the Bible is that the Bible is truly one book. It really is one book. Indeed, it has a single storyline which moves from a definite beginning to a decisive and conclusive end. It also has a purpose, an overarching theme, so to speak. What is that overarching theme? It's Jesus Christ and the salvation of, The redemption and reconciliation which God brings to us through him for his own glory. What a glorious theme that is. Even more, as the Bible story progresses, so that overarching theme of redemption in particular, that theme of redemption, of rescue, of deliverance, uh, is is described to us throughout the Bible in different ways. Different phases, so to speak. Indeed, let me quickly run through uh, those phases or moments of redemption uh, for you. First we have, in Genesis chapters 1 and 3, we have redemption required. For those three chapters explain to us why we're all sinners, held captive under the power and the penalty of sin. Then we have, through the rest of the Old Testament, redemption required patterned so why is redemption patterned for us through the rest of the old testament so that we can understand much more fully what it means for God to redeem us his people that Jesus Christ is a king he's a prophet he's a priest he's a sacrifice he's a bridegroom he's a shepherd he's a servant and I could go on couldn't I And the Old Testament also shows us that we cannot, we cannot redeem ourselves. No matter how much we may think that we are God's moral equal, we cannot redeem ourselves. For we need not just gracious pardon, we also need life-giving transformation within. Otherwise we will keep on sinning against God. We need God to act. The Old Testament shows us that. Next, within the gospel accounts of the New Testament, we have the third phase of redemption. Redemption accomplished. For Jesus, in his sacrificial death for us upon the cross, pays the costly ransom or redemption price for our sins. And then in the book of Acts and through the letters, we have redemption applied. For the Holy Spirit comes to us and the Holy Spirit gives to us new life. He enables us to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith so that we personally might be redeemed. Finally, within the book of Revelation in particular, we have redemption consummated. For the new heavens, the new earth will be ushered in and we will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Indeed, as we read, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Revelation 21 verse 4. Now, as we know, the Bible brings to us this story of redemption and reconciliation by using different different threads of truth, as it were. Threads of truth which, to change the metaphor, blossom and bloom like a flower opening as we progressively uh, read through the pages of the Bible. Therefore, we have the major theme, as I've just mentioned, of, of Jesus Christ and the salvation through him for God's glory. And so we have minor themes such as God's kingdom and God's covenants, God's people and their glorious inheritance from God and other minor themes like that. And one of those minor themes, as it were, is our subject for this evening. So that has all been by way of introduction. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to be here till midnight but we're going to look at one of those minor themes. It's the subject of God's presence with his people. Or, more specifically, that God's people will see his face. They will see the king in his beauty. What a glorious subject. So how should we approach uh, this subject of seeing the king in his beauty? Well, under three headings, all All good sermons should have three headings, I'm told, though often I didn't, Um, but we're going to look at it under three headings. First, we'll do a little bit of what is called biblical theology. We'll see how this theme is found throughout the Bible and how it develops throughout the Bible. Second, we will do a little bit of systematic theology. We'll see how this truth is a major part of the gospel message. And then, third, we'll attempt to apply this truth to ourselves today. So, what? We may ask. Three things, then, let's consider them in turn. Firstly, the biblical theology. For this subject of seeing God is an important, it's a vital biblical theme. I hope that that, if nothing else, comes through to you by the end of my message this evening. It's a vital theme. And there are many, many verses we could turn to in the Bible in order to illustrate this truth. However, again, simply for the sake of time, otherwise we will be here to midnight, let me just bring, very, very briefly that is, seven passages of Scripture. Let me bring them to your attention. First, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to these verses, just to check that what I'm saying be like the Bereans of old. Check to see what I'm saying is really there in the Bible. First is Genesis 3, verse 8. For in the beginning, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was unmarred and blessed communion between God and his image bearers. Indeed, we read within that verse that God would meet with them as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Imagine that. What blessing that would have been. For Adam and Eve, God would meet with them. But not now. No, not now. For now Adam and Eve have defied God's will for them. They were rebels, weren't they? They were sinners. So now as we read, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How desperately sad that is. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. In fact, later on, we even read of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, and therefore from God's presence, unable to return. Why? Because of an angel with a flaming sword. Genesis 3, verse 24. Now, that's the first uh, passage from the Old Testament, it's from the Bible, rather. Second, it, we have Exodus 33, verse 20. For Moses, that great leader of God's people who was instrumental in redeeming the fledgling nation of Israel out of slavery within Egypt, Moses wants to see God's glory. But what does God say to him? Exodus 33 verse 20, But the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live so even moses despite being a faithful servant of the lord even moses because of his sin even moses was unable to see god and live in other words that angel with the flaming sword still continues to bar men and women from god's presence But then we have two Old Testament verses which counter, in some measure that is, this depressing and dismal outlook. For they both give to us hope that this will not always be the case. Psalm 17 verse 15, as for me, David writes concerning the Lord, as for me I shall be vindicated and shall see your face when I awake. I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. And our text for this evening, Isaiah 33, verse 17. Your eyes will see the the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. So how can this be? How is it possible for both David and Isaiah to have such hope that they will truly see God? our final Old Testament passage gives us a hint of how this will be. Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And then in the end, that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and I, not another, how my heart yearns within me. In other words, there's a redeemer coming who will accomplish this for God's people, who will deal with irreversibly with the flaming sword of Eden, a redeemer. So who is this future redeemer? Well, we know, don't we? It's Jesus Christ himself. And even more, when we look at Jesus, we're actually looking, aren't we, at God himself? For Jesus is God. John 14, verse 9, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Therefore the King in his beauty, whom the redeemed will see, is Jesus Christ himself. For that's exactly whom David and Isaiah and Job and we ourselves, if we are believers in him, that's exactly whom we will say, Jesus. Finally, the seventh uh, passage is Revelation 22, verse 4, just a chapter beyond what we read earlier. In that verse we have when all this will fully come true. We have when. Eden's curse will be reversed and when Eden itself will be restored and more beyond. When? When? In the new heavens and the new earth. For in that verse we have these remarkable words concerning that future time. They will see his his name will be on their foreheads. How glorious is that? So in a sense, in a sense, the storyline of the Bible could be expressed as first, seeing the Lord lost. Second, seeing the Lord promised. Third, seeing the Lord won. And fourth, seeing the Lord restored. It's truly an important theme of the Bible. That's the biblical theology. However, secondly, let's look now at the systematic theology. For how, how is this at all possible? How can people, sinners, rebels, just like you and me, how can people get past that, that flaming sword of God's justice In order to once again enter God's presence and see his face. How can they? Indeed, why is Moses? Arguably the greatest man in the Old Testament. Not able to see God's glory yet. One day, all God's people will see his face. How is this possible? Well, ask yourself. What comes in between the redemption of Israel under Moses and the new heavens and the new earth ushered in by Jesus Christ when he comes again in glory and in majesty? What comes in between? It's the cross, isn't it? For on the cross, Jesus Christ deals with the flaming sword of Eden by going under it himself. By dying in his people's place. So that that terrifying sword of God's justice is no longer there for those who trust in Jesus. Yes, the sword killed him. But he also killed it. Therefore the sword of Eden has been broken, hasn't it? Or to slightly paraphrase... Uh, The Puritan John Owen, one of my favorite Puritans. Death itself has actually died in the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, once Jesus died under the justice of God, then the way back into God's presence was opened up for all those who have faith in him. Again, that is wonderful, isn't it? Now, if you think about it, that's exactly why, isn't it? Why the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's why. You see, this veil was there, wasn't it? To prevent everyone, everyone. That is, except for the high priest for a very short time, only once a year. The veil was there to prevent everyone from going into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place it was there to prevent everyone from going to the very into the very presence of the shekinah glory of god you cannot see god's face and live and the veil and the and the inner place there in the temple symbolized that banishment of god of people sinners from god's presence no one could go in but in mark 15 Verses 37 and 38, we read these two highly significant statements. One right after the other. What do we read? Mark 15, verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you see it? Do you see it? For once Jesus Christ died for us under the justice of God, so the way back into God's presence was opened for everyone who believes, which is symbolically represented by the tearing of the veil into two from top to bottom. Indeed, that's why we read in the very next verse, Mark 15, verse 39. We, we read there of the faith of the Gentile centurion. In a way, he was the first one in, wasn't he? And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the message which we have to proclaim, whether from a pulpit or over the internet or one-to-one over a cup of coffee, wherever. You see, we have been been made to know God, to love God, to serve God, to glorify God, even to enjoy God forever. But that wonderful purpose for our existence, to commune with God, has been tragically lost when Adam fell. But Jesus Christ, God's own beloved Son, came into this world in order to reverse the consequences of that fall. For Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death for his people, provides pardon, doesn't he, Fall and free and forever from God. He also grants transforming new life within. And he also reverses all the consequences of the fall. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Revelation 21 verse 4. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. It's glorious, isn't it? And all the glory will be to God. For he has done all things well. However, thirdly, finally, what about you? What about you this evening? What's the challenging personal application of this glorious truth to your own life today? What about you? So what? Well, let me give you three applications to finish. First, first application, this truth, this wonderful truth should give to you a true perspective on life within this world here and now. It's not pie in the sky. It has relevance for your life here and now we always need, don't we, to examine our priorities and to reject that which is unimportant. You see, life within this world, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're successful or a failure, whether we're influential or, like most of us, of no accounts, life within this world is but a breath. I've said that already, haven't I? Go back to Psalm 90, verse 12. Our life in this world is but a breath. It's all it is. That is all it is. So don't get overwrought if things go all pear-shaped. And don't make the things of this world a priority within your life either. No. No. Matthew 6, verses 21 and 22. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things we need to take that lesson to heart ourselves. We need to constantly think about where we are headed. That's what's important. Our destination. To see the king in his beauty. If we do that, it will help us to get things into a right perspective here and now. Second, second application. Is this truly, truly your desire, your longing? Is it? To see the king in his beauty? Is it your longing? Do you wholeheartedly agree with Job when he says in Job 19 verse 27, as he contemplates seeing God himself What does he say? How my heart yearns within me. Is that you? Is it? Indeed, ask yourself, what do you look forward to in heaven? Living forever? Being able to do all sorts of amazing things? Freedom from pain and suffering? No wrongdoing. They're good things, aren't they? Is that what you look forward to? Or to put it differently, what makes heaven heaven for you? I know what it should be. Jesus Christ himself. To see him. To see his face. Colossians 1 verse 27. Christ, the hope of glory. For this, this is to see the king in his beauty. This is the very pinnacle of blessings. To see God. And when we look at the face of God, it's actually the face of Jesus Christ whom we will see. Now do you realise that? Do you Do you realise that the very high point of heaven will not be living forever? It will not be enjoying all the wonder of what we ourselves are and what we ourselves shall do. No. The very high point of heaven will be seeing the beauty and the glory of our Savior. For he is altogether lovely. Bernard Hyam. In his hymn, I saw a new vision of Jesus, a hymn we were closing with in a few moments' time. He expresses this important truth like this. Our God is the end of the journey. His pleasant and glorious domain. For there are the children of mercy who praise him for Calvary's pain. You see it? Our God is the end of the journey. For the greatest blessing of the new heavens and the new earth will be to see Jesus Christ himself. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Is that your longing? Thirdly, finally, not only should this truth give you a right perspective on life within this world today, not only should it be your longing for the future, it should also make you thankful To God, for all his glorious, lavish grace to you in Jesus Christ. Are you thankful? Are you? Is your life characterised by thankfulness to God? Or are you like me, a bit of a grumbler? Everything's, Everything's not quite right. We are to be thankful, aren't we? This truth should lead you to worship and to praise and to adoration of the God who has given you his very own son as your saviour whom you will also one day see it should lead you to an ever deepening appreciation of who God is and an ever deepening wonder at what God has done for you In Jesus Christ. Indeed your worship of God. And your thankfulness to God now. Today. Should be in anticipation. Of how you will worship God. And be thankful to God then. In glory to come. For worship of God. And thankfulness to God then. It will be the central characteristic of your life in heaven. And such worship and such thankfulness will be wonderful, won't it? It will be an utter delight. Well, may the Lord help us to be thankful now in anticipation of the out-and-out wonder of seeing the King in his beauty and viewing a land that stretches afar. For his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.